Mr. Blazer, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. I'd like to talk to you about your career a bit. Why law? Um, why criminal defense? Well, I, my dad was an attorney, and uh, he had a lot of um, law books with transcripts in them. He, he practiced in the 30s and 40s. And so I would sit down and read those books, and I read the transcripts from trials, and it was just really excited me. Uh, and, um, you know, my brother's a, a lawyer. He's passed away now, but uh, he was a lawyer as well. Um, so it, it was kind of a natural thing for me to go into. So it was kind of preordained. Now, like many defense lawyers, you were a prosecutor first. Why was Correct. it important for you to go down that road? Well, I, you know, I actually wanted to be a prosecutor first, and um, uh, because I liked being on that side of the case, um, I thought I could, you know, provide help to people, um, and I was always very interested in defendants in terms of what their story was. And I was always willing to listen to the other side and say, you know, maybe if there's a defense here, I'll listen to you to anything you say. So I wasn't, I wasn't the hardest nosed prosecutor in the world at all. I was, I was pretty open to uh, the other side. Um, and then um, after I got, um, I got, I, I went in, into a DA's office in Contra Costa County, which is in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I was doing some political type cases and I got hired by uh, the California Fair Political Practices Commission as their director of enforcement. Um, and I did that for six years. And that was incredibly boring, quite frankly, because they didn't have any criminal remedies. They just had administrative remedies. and. We were governed by a, a panel of um, political appointees, and it just wasn't very satisfying at all. It, it really wasn't being a prosecutor. Um, so I left there and decided to become a defense attorney. And uh, I, I've enjoyed my work as a defense attorney, and I, I like the freedom it gives me. And I like um, going to trials and kind of taking pot shots at the other side. I mean, that's the fun part of cross-examination um, that, that has always been fun for me. Now, you were always, since the inception, a well-regarded lawyer, obviously, a well-known lawyer. And then in the early 90s, you became a really well-known lawyer. How yeah. were you recruited uh, to join the Dream Team, as it came to be known? Well, um, Barry Sheck, who had been hired to, as their DNA expert uh, at the preliminary hearing, uh, he and I had been on a panel together. And I know I also knew that Bob Shapiro had looked at my profile, but had decided to hire Barry. So uh, Barry called me right before the trial was to start and told me, he says, none of these guys know anything about DNA. Could you just come down for a couple of days and just kind of be company for me? And I stayed three years. What was <laughs> the state of DNA at that point? State, uh, DNA was really very early on. And uh, back then, in OJ's case, there were five different DNA testing methods in use at that time. None of them were being used these days. It's much better. Um, but we we had five different 
total methodologies to possibly challenge. And um, so that's kind of what what I thought was going to happen when we went down there because they were they were all new technologies, and um, they a lot of them had not been admitted in court in California anyway before. So we thought we we need to challenge all of these methods to see if they're scientifically acceptable, and that would be something that we would have done. Uh, in a month or two before the actual trial started. So Barry and I were talking um, after they brought me on board and Barry said, why don't we just waive our DNA admissibility hearings and just go right into the trial? And he scared the hell out of me because <laughs> I'm used to litigating all these admissibility issues. Um, and, and, and that's what I had been preparing for um because of all my other dna work um so finally i agreed with him i said hey let's do it uh and so we went right to trial and we really caught the prosecution off guard because they were expecting to have another month delay while we litigated the admissibility of the dna but we decided hey let's waive that because in this particular case um we didn't we didn't think we had a chance of, of winning on the admissibility questions because it was too high profile. Uh, we didn't think Judge Ito was going to throw out the DNA uh, there and there was too much DNA as well. So uh, we took a calculated risk and decided not to challenge it. And uh, so we would challenge each individual item that was tested and bring out problems with the, those items. And, and it, it seemed to work. Alan Dershowitz, to whom I've spoken, had described to me that the team functioned as a nightmare, not a dream. How well did the team function in your view? Well, just let me back up a second. Alan Dershowitz was my first, job, first year law professor at Harvard, and I just loved him. I mean, he, 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 was, he was the best professor professor. And um, so the fact that he came on board um, after me or around the time of me um, was really exciting for me to, to now get to work with him. Um, but characterizing the defense team as a nightmare is, is a good way to put it. It really was a nightmare. There were so many different personalities and everybody knew the case was going to be televised. And so everybody was doing their things to try and get on the screen. Uh, and so, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of personality conflicts. And, and uh, after we, as we got in, um, Lee Bailey stopped talking to Bob Shapiro and Johnny took over the case. We had a, a meeting where um, uh, Barry and I were, were living in a, in a hotel that Bob Shapiro supported. And we had a meeting with OJ on the phone and OJ said, look, I, I, I want Johnny to be my quarterback, Bob, you know, you can be the, you can be the, the coach, but I want, I want Bob or Shapiro or Cochran to be my quarterback. And at that point we moved all of our stuff, all of Barry and my stuff from uh, uh, Bob Shapiro's hotel to Johnny's hotel. <laughs> And, and stayed there. So, you know, it, it was, we had a lot of fights 
<laughs> during all that process. But, you know, it worked out okay. I mean, we, we didn't fight in, in the courtroom, but uh, we had a lot of tussles uh, throughout. What was the most memorable part in your recollection? Well, the most memorable part for me, and um, um, I mean, there were a lot of memorable, memorable parts, but there was one incident where um, we were trying to get the uh, Furman tapes admitted from from Laura McKinney. She, she was uh, a writer and had interviewed Mark Furman. And um, we tried to get those tapes admitted. Uh, Ito refused to let them in, but uh, he did agree to play the tapes for everybody other than the jury in the courtroom. And what really kind of boggled my mind was that um, all of the Caucasians, including me, were just totally outraged at the things that he was saying of, about African-Americans and Hispanics. And I mean, it was just outrageous. But all of the black correspondents in the audience were saying, hey, that's, that's what we live with. I mean, they, we weren't surprised at any of that stuff. So I found that just fascinating. Um, but there were so many other moments as well when OJ tried on the gloves. Um, I had actually, I was in charge of gloves and um, I had actually tried on the gloves in back in the jury room without any latex gloves underneath and they were they were actually very tight on me and OJ has very big hands um, and so we kind of thought that that um, they might not fit but we didn't we didn't want to take a chance I mean because that, that would have blown the whole case if they fit uh, well well this was you know while we were contemplating that um, Lee Bailey went over and talked to Chris Darden and said, hey, why don't you have O.J. try on the gloves? And he did. And Darden had O.J. try on the gloves. And that was a huge turning point. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it, that was a great moment. That was exciting. What was the reason for the acquittal, in your opinion? I think there were a lot of reasons. I think uh, the main was, was race, and you know everybody criticized us for playing the race card. Which, but there was there was racial issues all over the case. You know, you got a a famous black athlete married to a beautiful white woman, um, and you you can't get away from the racial question. So, I think that was one of the main reasons. I think one of the other reasons was how we were able to basically challenge a lot of the DNA results. And we, we felt pretty strongly that the cops had played with the evidence and, and that some of the results were just not credible. Um, so we attacked everything uh, on the DNA. And so I think, I think that was important as well. Um, but another big factor was the length of the trial. It went on for almost a year. And I think the jury was just just uh, exhausted. Um, and so, you know, we I expected the jury uh, to be out for several weeks. Well, we, we came home 
and we got a call that night. The jury's back with a verdict. And so we flew back down to LA and for the verdict, they took less than four hours to deliberate. Um, and uh, we got the not guilty verdict. You were the only lawyer on the case to represent OJ in both the criminal and civil trials. Yeah, that makes it makes me the only attorney in the world who's both won and lost the Simpson case. Why did you decide to come back for the civil case? Um, because I agreed to, to to work on the civil case. I was the only one really uh, of the forensic experts to agree to work on the civil case. Barry didn't want to do it. Uh, Peter Newfeld, they didn't want to do it. They were tired of California, wanted to go back to New York. Um, so I agreed to do it. And um, actually, I lived uh, at OJ's uh, for, for that year in Cato's room. Uh, and uh, so I had a lot of free time with OJ um, and got to know him pretty well. What was OJ like as a client? He was actually very intelligent, very sharp. Um, he would he would give us notes, you know, you know, why don't you ask this? Why don't you ask that? And give us kind of outlines and things. And he was he was he was very sharp as a client. Um, now there's one story that I can tell you because it's been written about. Um, O.J. very much wanted to testify in the criminal case, and. Um, uh, what we did was uh, myself and Sean Chapman, one of the one of the other attorneys in Johnny's firm, uh, we hired a couple of female attorneys, very aggressive female attorneys from the Bay Area, and brought them down to cross-examine, do a mock cross-examination of OJ, and they just tore him apart. And it wasn't like he would, he didn't admit anything. Uh, incriminating at all. He's always denied involvement in the homicides. But because of all the baggage that he had from the earlier incidents with Nicole, um, they, they just absolutely tore him apart. And so we convinced OJ, don't testify, you don't need to, and you shouldn't. Um, unfortunately, he had to testify in the civil case, and that didn't work out very well at all, just because you know he's got he's a, got a very strong ego and he wants to kind of explain everything to to everybody uh which is not a good thing for a client to do if you've got baggage but you know it happens so we you know we went into the civil case pretty much expecting to lose it uh because it was tried in santa monica rather than downtown la uh and we had a totally different jury from the criminal case. Um, so we, we, we just, it was just a matter of how, what damages were going to be in, in my view anyway. We didn't expect to win it. You know, in recent years, decade or so, there has been renewed interest in the case, the 30 year anniversary why do you think this case holds up so well in the perception of the public? Uh, folks are interested in this case for years and decades after the verdict, and I presume will be for some time. Um, well, it just, it had everything. I mean, it, it had celebrity, it had uh, racial issues, um, it, um, 
I mean, I, I still, I, I still see myself in TV interviews, you know, after 30 years. And um, so it's, and I'm still being interviewed by people about the case. It, it just seems it's the kind of case that just has a lot of sex appeal, if you will, uh, in terms of, you know, what it stood for and what the result was. A lot of people have a, have a lot of negative feelings about the results. Uh, a lot of people have positive feelings. So uh, it was a very um, strong reactions on, on just about everybody's side, some positive, some negative. How accurate were the portrayals in film and TV over the past years? Well, um, you know, I've watched a few of the specials on it, and um, I, I think for the most part they were relatively accurate. But you know, they it, it was such a long process, and there were so many issues involved. I mean. It, there was one issue, I, I don't think anybody's uh, on any of the film reenactments have, have talked about it, but there was one issue about Mark Furman's relationship to Judge Ito's wife. And that happened in the middle of the trial and both sides, both the prosecution and the defense, we were really concerned about whether we were gonna wind up with a mistrial uh, because Judge uh, Mark Furman was making very negative comments about Judge Ito's wife. And so, we, oh my God, we were afraid that Judge Ito might have to accuse himself from the whole case. So what we did was um, we both sides agreed that another judge would consider those issues. And, um, uh, and it turned out that, you know, we were able to work it out so that none of that information about Ito's or Ito's wife was going to really come into the case so we kind of all agreed to not do that just because none of us wanted the mistrial we didn't want to have to start over again you think that OJ as some have suggested suffered more from the acquittal than most other defendants do oh gosh yeah I mean um I mean he's persona non grata now pretty much everywhere i mean people still flock to him and, um, and he's still extremely personable he's very friendly uh and open to anybody and uh but you know he's he's a, a negative person to most people nowadays so i think i i think the acquittal you know what was great for him and gave him his freedom um you know I think it ruined his life, really. When you look back at it, right, and you look at the defense team, and you mm -hmm. were part of the defense team, and so were other high-profile lawyers, obviously, uh, Alan Dershowitz is still very much in the spotlight for mm -hmm. his legal opinions these days. Lee Bailey may have been the most well-known criminal defense lawyer of the 20th century. When you look back at it, how does it make you feel uh, to have been involved in this case for your skill, for your acumen? Oh, gosh, it, it was it was a 24-hour-a-day 20, adrenaline rush for me. I loved it. It was just great fun because Lee Bailey had been a, 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 um, 
I really wanted to meet Lee because I, I really admired his career. I thought he's a tremendous attorney. Um, and, um, and I didn't, I hadn't known Johnny from before, but he turned out to be just a sweet guy, uh, you know, unfortunately passed away, but, um, but Lee and I wound up working on, on Lee's book. Um, and so I, you know, I got very close to Lee. Um, there was one situation because we were concerned about Lee's drinking and, um, Johnny, asked me to spend a lot of time with Lee, which I did, to try and make sure, you know, he was going to be okay. Um, and it turned out he, he was. I told Johnny, you know, I, I, I think he's going to be fine. Uh, and there were a couple of witnesses that Lee did that I didn't think he did a very good job with. But with Mark Furman, I think he, that was the best cross-examination I've ever seen in my career. I thought it was just terrific. So it turned out very good. And, you know, I'm sorry that he passed away. That was fairly recent, but um, he was a great guy. He was a great guy. Let's talk about some issues related to the case. Are cameras mm -hmm. in the courtroom a good idea? I think so. I, th I think it's in the, in the fact that the, the federal courts don't allow them, I think is, is, is very bad. I think it's very important to to have a not have the kind of filter that the media puts on things um, to uh, so that people can actually see what happens. I think most people are going to find it very boring. I mean, in the Trump trials that are coming up, um, uh, at least the Georgia one is going to be televised, and I think people are going to find it very boring, quite frankly, because. Doing it, doing trials. There's there's a lot of excitement, but but there's a lot of dead time as well. Um, but I think I, I think cameras are essential to be in the courtroom. And you know, I I I read an article about right after OJ was televised, um, the Menendez trial, the retrial, came up. I think it was just a year or so later. And the judge ruled that it wasn't going to be televised at all. <laughs> the first one had been, but not the second one. So I, I think that was unfortunate. Um, um, so I, I think to that extent, having OJ televised probably turned some people off on TVs in the courtroom. But I, but I think it's, I think it's, it's a great way to for people to see what happens in our justice system. Does the presumption of innocence? exist in no. practice no no um no it doesn't um th this is such a hard issue for defense attorneys um you know we we all have our favorite phrases that we use in front of juries and stuff um but no i don't think it works quite frankly um i think a lot of it is just personality uh, if, if if the jury likes the defendant, I think you win the case. If they don't like the defendant, you lose the case. And uh, I, I, I think that's unfortunate, uh, but I think it's very difficult for juries to really accept the concept of beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just, I think it's, it's too difficult. You know, your career, for most people, representing O.J. Simpson would be representing 
the most hated defendant that that particular lawyer has represented. For you, that may not be the case, that, which is why your your career is so unique. You also represented the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Correct, correct. Tell me about that. Well, that, that was another case where litigating the DNA evidence was going to be totally useless because there's no court was going to let him go. Um, it was too too serious a case. So I did my best and I, I, I made my presentation and I filed my paperwork and, and the judge just didn't really listen to any of the DNA evidence. And the DNA evidence was not there was there wasn't that much DNA evidence in in Kaczynski as there was in OJ. There was a ton of DNA in OJ, um, but there wasn't that much in Kaczynski. But you know, I did my best to try and attack it. Um, and, and again, it was uh, it was still at the very early stages of DNA technology. So, um, but we we just didn't have a whole lot of hope to, that we were going to do anything other than get him some kind of a plea bargain to save his life. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that's that's a win. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, what's your win and loss record? And I say, well, in the Unabomber, I consider that a win. We saved his life. You know, he went to prison forever, but we saved his life. Um, so the other side might also say, well, yeah, we won the case, but um, that, that's why I don't, I don't, I, I hate it when, attorneys talk about their win and loss records because it's just totally meaningless in my view. You know, these high profile cases must be so difficult. The relationship between the media and the court system uh, necessarily creates so many issues, whether it's uh, obviously creating an issue with the jury or creating an issue with the general public. What is your view on that? Any any kind of a high profile case is going to draw media attention, and um, um, so you know it is what it is. And obviously, I don't think there should be any restrictions on it at all. Um, so it, it, if you have a case that people uh, are interested in, it's going to be reported on by the media, and that's that's you know one of the reasons why I think they should be televised so that you can kind of take the media out of it in a sense. And if people really want to watch, they can, and they can see it as it happens, rather than having been filtered by somebody who has obviously some biases. I mean, they, they all do, and that's okay. Um, so so I think it's, it's, it's fine that they have a lot of attention to these kind of high profile cases, but um, um, th that's why I think it's so important that uh, uh, trials be televised. Should courts be more willing to move venue when appropriate, to sequester juries when appropriate, to engage these kinds of efforts to try to minimize prejudice or other negative impact on the case? I think it should. Uh, it doesn't happen anymore. Uh, it's just I, I can't remember the last time a venue was changed. Um, it, it, you know, we used to, we used to have change of venue motions fairly frequently. They didn't always work, but, um, the, there were some that did work. Um, but, um, I mean, it, there's tremendous logistical problems when you have a change of venue. Um, but I, and I can't remember, I don't think I've ever had a case where there was a change of venue. 
Um, so to, to that extent, you know, we, it's like with OJ, I mean, where are you going to change the venue to? I mean, <laughs> you know, everybody knows about the case. So, and, and like the Unabomber, everybody knows about the case. So, so it's kind of pointless to worry about a change of venue in that kind of a situation. But anytime you have a case, you know, it's in a small area, a localized area, uh, and everybody seems to know about the case and they have connections to people that were involved in the case. I mean, that's a good situation where, you know, maybe the case should be held somewhere else. But I, you know, I, for all intents and purposes, I don't think we, we see change of venue motions granted anymore, really. I want to talk to you, uh, lastly, about the Phil Spector case. You mm -hmm. were a defense lawyer on the Phil Spector case. Uh, why and how did you get involved in that case? Um, basically, I got involved in that case because um, um, I'm trying to remember who brought me into that. I, I think Bob Shapiro was involved at some point, and Bob and I got along pretty well. Uh, I can't remember whether he brought me into it or whether uh, Linda Bodden brought me into it. Linda Bodden is uh, Michael Bodden's wife, and she was one of the attorneys on the case. Um, so w one of those two people brought me into it, and, and uh, obviously because Michael had worked on OJ and um, and Henry Lee had worked on, on OJ and worked on Spectre as well. So uh, I think I, I think that's how I got into it. You know, as it relates to OJ, because of this whole Kardashian thing, uh, mm -hmm. there is so much interest in the case. I would assume back then that was probably the furthest thing from your mind. I'm assuming you didn't know much about these people. Um, how funny is that to you, just as something that may pique your interest? Oh, I think it's a scream. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, you know, I, I got to know Bob Kardashian pretty well, but, but we never met any of his kids at all. So now that they're adult stars as well, it's, I, I think it's fascinating, but <laughs> it's kind of not relevant to anything, but um, I, I think it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, yeah, Hollywood, is, Hollywood and LA are very interesting places to be sure. So you still practice now and you still represent clients. What kind of work do you generally do? What does the future hold for your work? Well, um, right now I'm kind of limiting myself to DNA cases. And uh, I have one trial that's scheduled to go uh, in the next month or so. Uh, and um, I've just been retained on another case to look at a, a conviction that's already occurred. Um, and there's another homicide case in one of our outer counties uh, that I'll probably be involved in as well. And, and those are the kind of cases that are fun for me because I know I know the DNA stuff. I mean, you know, I I had my first DNA case in 1990, um, and it was the first case in California where DNA was an issue. Um, so I told my judge, I said, I don't know anything about DNA please give me six months and so I can learn it. And he gave me six months and I hired an expert and spent a lot of time with this expert. And uh, you find out in the law that once you do one case, you become an expert. So, <laughs> so it worked for me. And you know, it, it was kind of my entry into some of these other cases.
Mr. Blazier, I want to thank you for your time, uh, for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. Okay, you bet. Good luck to you.